Not accept a system in which shareholders make money on these operations. If the bank wins, but taxpayers foot the bill. If the bank loses. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson and I'm Alex Bloomberg. That was President Barack Obama. You heard at the top of the program announcing his new plan for regulating the financial system. And we'll have more on that later in the program. But first, Alex, I see that you have brought in in a gold box the Planet Money Indicator. Dun, da, da, da. The Planet Money Indicator is forty-three plus one. All right, I'm going to take the 43 first. That's the number of states that had their unemployment rates increase in December. So 43 states have higher unemployment. That's according to the new government numbers released today. And the plus one, that is the District of Columbia. The unemployment rate also went up there. The rate went down in only four states, and in three states it stayed the same. So this officially counts as more bad news on the employment front. Although it might have some tiny trickle of good news because more people were participating, more people were looking for work. So maybe that hints that more people think the economy is doing better. Possibly. But basically, this is far worse news than people had expected we'd be experiencing at this time. And that could explain the wave of anger and discontent that swept a little-known Republican to a Senate victory in Massachusetts. Which in turn could explain why President Obama has been acting a little feistier when it comes to dealing with Wall Street. In the last month, he unveiled a proposal to levy a special tax on the biggest banks to pay back the money that the government is expected to lose through the bailout programs. And then just yesterday, he unleashed a bit of a bombshell. It's So far, all we have is a one-page press release, but it promises much tougher regulations on the financial industry, regulations that have been advocated by former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker, among others. He pledged to work with Congress to limit the size of banks. And also to limit the activities that banks can engage in. In essence, he wants to pass laws that say if you're a bank or a bank holding company, you can no longer own or invest in a hedge fund, a private equity fund, or run a proprietary trading operation. Now, Alex, I, I sit next to you and I happen to know you are a man obsessed with this prop trading, proprietary trading that the banks engage in. I've never fully understood your obsession, but now I'm glad you have it <laughs> since it's front page news. Well, I, I, you hear a lot about it. And, and, it and, and, and on the one side, people say it's banks gambling for their own profit with your money and my money and anybody who's deposited money in the bank. And then you'll talk to others who say it's a ridiculous distinction. There's nothing inherently bad about prop trading. And now here, regulations are coming out to potentially ban it. So I wanted to talk with someone who could help us think this through. And I got a guy named Andrew Lowe on the line. He's a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management and an author of many, many books on financial markets and institutions. And I just started off by asking him, okay, if you're a proprietary trader at a bank, what do you do? You're basically trying to make money um, with uh, funds from the bank or the financial institution. You're, you're betting with house money. And you're trying to make money in a variety of different markets uh, in much the same way that a hedge fund uh, would try to make money for its investors. So, and, and as I understand, hedge funds have different strategies. Some of them are simply, you know, they have a view on how stocks are going to go. And so they're basically buying and selling stocks according to some plan that they have. And so they borrow a whole bunch of money and they say, we're going to pick stocks basically better than everybody else, better than the market, and we're going to get high returns. Others are investing in mortgage-backed securities, for example, or investing in in emerging markets or whatever, right? That's So a hedge fund is sort of, the idea is it takes people's money and then it, it says, I have a strategy for 
increasing that money and mm-hmm. I'm going to and I'm going to use it. So what is the difference between that and a proprietary desk at a bank? Really no difference at all other than where the capital comes from. A proprietary trading desk is trying to do exactly the same thing. They start out with a pile of money, and they just want to make that pile grow bigger. And they're engaging in lots of different activities across various different markets in order to do that. The main difference is that proprietary traders get their capital from the financial institution or the bank, uh, whereas a hedge fund will get its money from investors in the fund. So in other words, the proprietary trader is getting its money from from me. I I have a savings account at, at a bank. So that's they're using my money versus I don't I am not an investor in a hedge fund. Well, uh, partly yes, they can use your deposits or part of it for that activity, uh, but they could also be using corporate profits. So when they make money for their shareholders, they could be using some of that money uh, to engage in proprietary trading. Mm-hmm. And what about Fed money? Well, you know, to the extent that Fed money was provided to banks to give them more liquidity, yes, they could be using some of those funds in order to trade. Right. I guess that's the situation that seems different is if I'm an investor in a hedge fund, I know that I am taking my hard-earned gazillion or money and giving it to people and that there's a risk that they're not going to – they could be lying in the case of Bernie Madoff or they could be involved in the wrong strategy or whatever. I know I'm taking a risk with my money and I'm Mm -hmm. giving it to very smart people and I'm hoping that they know something that the rest of the market doesn't. But I also know if they don't get it back to me, it's gone. Mm -hmm. Whereas – my money that I give to Chase Bank, I'm I'm putting it in there because I know that money is going to come back to me. It's guaranteed by the government. And the same mm-hmm. with Fed money. So it seems a little bit weird. I guess that's the impetus for this rule to disallow banks to use, you know, insured deposits or to use, you know, other types of government guaranteed money for their own, you know, internal hedge funds. Well, you know, I certainly think that that it's a reason to be more careful and deliberative about what banks can and cannot do. Anytime you're dealing with depositor funds, I think one has to uh, sort of uh, think about, um, you know, the risks in a different way. You really have to answer to a higher standard when you're dealing with the public. And so I think that's why we have so many rules that govern and constrain what banks can do versus what a hedge fund can do. But having said that, at the same time, we have to recognize that proprietary trading has a number of positive benefits, which if we end up constraining it, we will have to face those consequences. So 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 what are those positive benefits? I think that's one of the things. Like, it's easy to understand, hey, they're gambling with my money. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's a very easy thing to understand from, a, from you know, somebody who's not an expert point of view. Why do I want some trader picking stocks with my deposits? Why is that good? Well, you know, let's uh, go through a simple example. You know, you put your money in a bank and the bank is allowed to take some of those deposits, not all of them, but some of them, a pretty large chunk, in fact, and make other uses, uh, take other uses with the funds. For, for example, they're allowed to make loans right. uh, with your deposit. And that's generally considered a good thing because when they make loans, they're actually providing liquidity to the marketplace. People who need those funds, who want to start new businesses, who want to send their kids to college, they will need that money. And a bank will provide those funds and earn uh, interest on it and therefore be able to be profitable. Right. I give the bank $100. It takes 90 of that of those dollars, loans it to a small business person to 
you know, open a new factory. That factory is productive. They pay the bank back a big interest, 6% interest, and then the bank pays me 3% interest. Everybody's happy. In the perfect ideal model, that's how it should work, right? Okay. Right. Exactly. The bank's betting that when it makes that loan of the $90, that it will get back the $90 plus interest. So in a way, the bank has already taken a position uh, in a risky venture. Wait a minute. The bank is gambling with my money. Uh, exactly. Um, but as long as the gamble pays off, more often than not, uh, everybody's happy. Right. And so proprietary trading is really just another form of that kind of betting. Uh, the bank is betting instead of on a new business with a loan, maybe they're betting on the U.S. dollar. Maybe they're betting on mortgage-backed securities. Maybe they're betting on the stock market. Or maybe they're betting on convertible arbitrage. So they're engaging in a number of different productive uses of the money. See, that, and okay. that's, that word productive uses. I feel like mm-hmm. that's another place that we run into trouble is that I can understand, oh, yeah, I want the small business person to get a loan. Um, mm-hmm. So so I don't necessarily care if I have an understanding of how the bank works in the first place, which I think is a big F. <laughs> but say I do, I'm happy that there's a small business person getting a loan with my money and that the economy is growing. Mm-hmm. But the reality is a proprietary trader is maybe involved in some sort of crazy flash trading scheme that I've read about maybe somewhere or like saw some news report about that I don't understand and that seems like seems like simply the bank and the trader can get rich, but no small business person is getting a loan out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, so I think this is a very important point that really requires a, a little bit more thought because yeah. when, when you actually think about what a proprietary trader is doing, um, keep in mind that you know, given the, that we have a, um, a relatively robust and uh, free economy, uh, every buyer has a seller and every seller has a buyer. In other words, a trade doesn't happen unless two mutually consenting adults agree to it. Mm-hmm. And when they agree to it, that must mean that there's a reason uh, for doing the trade. So in the example that uh, you cited where you're providing a small business loan to create uh, jobs, um, in the same way, a proprietary trader who's trading uh, some fancy securities or engaging in high-frequency trading, they're actually providing liquidity to the marketplace. They're providing uh, the um, sort of the buying and the selling in order to allow business to grow. All right, and now, that's a very important part of the now, uh, economy. And I'm going to jump in here. And just the sure. minute somebody says a phrase, they are providing liquidity. Yeah, Joe, ninety percent intelligent guy who cares about this stuff but doesn't really you've lost them you know what i mean yeah. like and, and yeah. i and i feel like that is the that is the great problem with this so, so what is that why why do i care i don't care. providing well, liquidity i don't even care about that what does that mean so this this is a great point and it, it's a really important one that i think everybody can understand very easily so let me give you an example Suppose that uh, you just got a job in another city, and it's Mm -hmm. a great job. Uh, You've been looking for it. It's a promotion. Uh, The only problem is that you need to move within the next two weeks, and you've got to sell a house. Now, if you need to sell a house in two weeks, literally, you have to close in two weeks, you can bet that you're going to take a big hit on the value of that home. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if this new job uh, has with it the ability to be flexible and you don't need to move in two weeks, you can move in, let's say, you know, three months, then there's a, a much better chance that you'll be able to sell the house at a more reasonable price. The difference between selling the house right away versus selling it in three months, that has to do with liquidity. If you can't sell something very quickly, the only way that you can unload it is by taking a big hit. That's not a very good situation. 
And so when we, saw, when we talk about the importance of liquidity, providing liquidity, it's really saying that there are lots of people out there that are willing to buy and sell. It's sort of like on eBay. You know, when you've got lots of bidders for a particular uh, commodity, you're likely to get a better price than if, if nobody's bidding on it or if it's just one person. And so the question is, do you want to have a market, an eBay, with lots and lots of participants, or do you want to only have one or two? Uh, the idea behind uh, proprietary trading is we, we want to have a more robust kind of eBay for financial markets. Right. And so, so in that house example, if there was somebody who was like, sure, I'll buy your house at closer to the market rate right now because I'm pretty sure I, I, I have a whole bunch of houses in my portfolio and I'm, I'm buying and selling houses all the time and I can see what your house is actually worth in a regular marketplace. So I'll, mm-hmm. just, I'll buy your house from you right now and then I'll sell it down the road and I'll make my money back. And so what you're saying is, if you substitute stocks for houses or yeah. weird securities for houses, that is what mm-hmm. a proprietary trader is doing. So, so what are you worried about then? I mean, if this is all just a good thing, why, why should we even worry about it? Well, you know, I think the worry is that proprietary trading can get involved in some very, very complex kinds of risks. And, you know, in the example that we started with where a bank is making a small business loan to a shopkeeper who's going to start a new bakery or something, we understand pretty well what those risks are. But when you start engaging in very esoteric and complex trading strategies, the risks become much more difficult to manage. And, you know, once again, when you're dealing with depositors, I think we need to have a higher standard of care regarding the kinds of risks that uh, we put their money at. And so that, that's the concern, that if proprietary trading grows too quickly and in, in many complex ways, then we won't have enough time to really understand the potential risks that we're creating within the financial system. And if I could summarize, I think, I've, I, think I have a way of summarizing your position, which, which tell me if I'm right. The problem with proprietary trading is not that the bank is taking my money and gambling with it because the bank is essentially always taking my money and gambling with it. The problem, mm-hmm. if there is a problem with proprietary trading is, in the shopkeeper example, the bank basically knows what the odds are. And right. in the proprietary trading arena, sometimes the bank thinks it knows what the odds are, but actually it doesn't know what the odds are. Exactly. And what's even worse, the government doesn't necessarily know what the odds are, and yet the government is on the hook if things go wrong. So in my view, if the government and hence the taxpayer, if you and I are going to be footing the bill when things go wrong, then I think that we have a responsibility and the right to know exactly what those risks are and to be able to manage them appropriately. One other question, which is, I'm a bank. I'm, I've got all these different operations going on. I know that one of my clients is about to do something with their money. They're, they're about to buy a whole bunch of stock and something or sell a whole bunch of, uh, of stock. Or I'm, I know that one of my clients is about to do something. What's to stop me from taking that information that I know and then using it to my advantage on the prop trading desk? You know, that, that's a great point and something that obviously a number of, uh, of individual and institutions have worried about, the, the implicit conflict of interest when you've got an organization that's engaged in multiple lines of business. Uh, so, of course, what we've done uh, over time uh, in our regulatory infrastructure is to create separations between business lines. These are uh, so-called Chinese walls that are set up between different units of a financial institution, and they're not allowed to communicate over those Chinese walls. Uh, on occasion, uh, I think those Chinese walls are more like Japanese walls, you know, made out of rice paper <laughs> instead, of, uh, instead of stone. Uh, and I think that's a genuine concern. And the Chinese but wall actually s- didn't stop anything either. 
apparently there was a gigantic well, failure as well. <laughs> uh, cer- certainly had will a, tell you. Yeah, that, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I think that there are some issues that. And this is why I think we need to spend more time thinking about the underlying causes of the financial crisis and why we really need to create a kind of a national transportation safety board to study the problems with the financial system and to sift through the wreckage and really document what happened, how it happened, why it happened, and what needs to be done on a systemic level to make sure that it doesn't happen again. So, Alex, listening to your interview with Andrew Lowe, here's my question. I just don't have an answer right now. Has the politics fundamentally changed, do you think? I mean, the basic take that that it seems has been in place for the last year has been, yes, there's an appetite for more regulation, but there's not an appetite in Washington, even if there certainly is one in the rest of the country, there's not an appetite among Democrats or Republicans in power to really fundamentally challenge the banks. Uh, the the basic thing, I, it seems to me, is the average person probably wants them to be, quote unquote, tough on banks, but they don't know enough about, I mean, banking regulation is so complicated that there's not some popular call for any specific thing. So I just wonder, does this mean the fundamental politics have shifted or is this just going to sort of be watered down day by day by bank lobbyists and the general legislative process? Well, I mean, I think it's definitely going to be watered down, I'm sure. But but I do think that something has probably changed in that, you know, if you have, if it's 60-40 in the Senate and you're trying to get something passed, your strategy is, okay, I'm going to try to get something that 60 of the senators in my party can agree on and I'm just going to get that passed. And so that looks one way. But if you're if the balance of power shifts just a little bit in the Senate, then maybe a different strategy is to be like, okay, I'm going to go tougher. And since there's going to be a filibuster anyway, I'm going to make people filibuster something that you know most of my constituents would support more. So I, I, I think it might be that maybe that's the calculation is that I'm more likely to get something if I can shame the other side into backing down. Maybe. I don't know. I have such a hard time understanding economics. I feel like we're barely getting our handle on that. But politics is, (laughs) to me, just so much more confusing. I will say we did call Scott Talbot, our favorite banking lobbyist, at the Financial Services Roundtable. He lobbies for the 100 largest financial uh, firms in the country. You'll be shocked to learn. Not a big fan of Obama's proposal. um, But says that there's not a lot of details yet. They're going to be working closely with the administration and Congress on the details. And he could imagine this coming out in a way that the large banks feel good about. Right. And, and of course, um, our other good friend, Simon Johnson, on his blog, uh, Baseline Scenario, was saying- Who's been calling for things like this for a long time. And he had a, a blog post that said, welcome back, Mr. President, something like that. So they're obviously very supportive of this uh, change in direction for the president. Although Simon did say, I'm going to be- Studying this on carefully you like a on your like a hawk. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and as will we be. Uh, anyway, I think that wraps it up for us, Alex. Yes, it does. Please visit us at npr.org/money. Send us your comments, questions, concerns, photos to planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Adam Davidson, and I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thank you for listening. What you say?